0: And as we conclude our series, please take your Bibles and turn with me once more to Acts chapter 2. We'll look at verses 42 to 47 one more time. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you're visiting with us or it's your first Sunday, I would invite you to, to join us in this study this morning. You can use the blue Bible in the pew pocket if you don't have one. And you'll find the text for today on page 911. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And just as a note of context, the Holy Spirit has descended, Christ has ascended, And the apostles preach for the first time in the power of the Spirit. The first time they endeavor any ministry beyond that of Jesus himself. It is them here, Jesus there. What's interesting about this text is what happens as a result of that first ministry endeavor. For the first time, they are ministering and the power of the holy spirit and acts 2 verses 42 to 47 shows the result of their ministry and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Interestingly, individuals repent and believe in Christ and are baptized, and the next thing we see them do is to devote, to commit themselves to one another For the accomplishing of Christ's purposes on this earth. But it seems that a community is formed. A group. A team. Represented in a local place. Just like Jerusalem. What we would call a church. A church with an identifiable number even. And how have we got here? At what point did this idea of a church, of a a particular group of people representing Jesus, where did that ever come from? Was it the invention of the apostles? Or was it the design of our Lord? The last six weeks, we've simply been trying to show from the Scriptures that what we're doing here today is not a matter of our own ingenuity. But it's a matter of the Lord's authority. He intended for gatherings just like this to happen. And I could summarize for you where we've been the last five weeks and what the Scriptures teach about the church with a few simple words. And as you know, I will try to start them with the same letter so they'll even be more memorable. Purpose, picture, place, participation. Purpose, picture, place, participation. We've seen in the last few weeks in God's Word that his purpose from the very beginning was to establish a group of people who would represent him. It was never just individuals, he always wanted a group, a family. But Adam and Eve failed at this course, but God was still determined to keep he still purposed to save a group it would be a family through Abraham then it would be a nation then it would be a people but Matthew sixteen eighteen made it very clear that even though all those other entities failed to fully represent their Lord Christ would establish a church a gathering that would accurately represent Him and so it's been God's purpose all along to save a group of people and we have the opportunity to be a part of that and guess what that is pictured in a particular way this relationship that we enjoy with Christ and one another is pictured throughout the New Testament in, in ways that, that we can like get a hold of. Like Some of the pictures of our relationship with Christ are this, that every one of you who are in Christ today are stones in His temple. Sure, there's some sense in which you represent the temple of God in your own body, but more particularly, each one of you are a small stone, myself included, that represent the the building of Christ. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God lived. Now, God lives among us and our individual relationships with one another. Another picture that of a part of a body. None of you are the whole body of Christ, nor am I. We're just a piece. We're a piece of the body a pinky, a hand, an ear, an eye, but we are part of the body of Christ. Nobody's the whole thing. We are in Christ, we play a part. And then finally, we're a member of the family. Nobody's all the children, but you are one of His children. And because of that, you have relationships with one another. So purpose, picture, and then place. God intended for this relationship to, to take place in a particular location, in time and space, in local gatherings. Gatherings characterized by a commitment to the preaching of the Word and the practice of the ordinances and the pursuit of corporate purity. Anytime you have a group of people who are regularly gathering together in the name of Jesus, they are picturing Him in a unique way. It is His authoritative place. Wherever the gospel is regularly preached, wherever the ordinances are regularly practiced, wherever people are committed to one another's purity. Which leaves us with the last piece of the church puzzle. And that is participation. God's got a purpose. He's got a picture that He wants to put on display. He wants it to take place in a particular location. And now it's our part to participate. And we participate by committing ourselves to the advance of the gospel. There's this gospel conduct. And as we saw last week... We also participate by cooperating with one another for the sake of the gospel. There's this unity where we're working together. And then I, I, I thought it'd be best for us to end with just the most practical expression of our participation to God's church. And that is this. Commitment. Commitment. Or commitment to the church. Commitment to church is a scary thought for some. I first saw this humorously portrayed in R. Kent Hughes' already Christian classic, Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's a fantastic book. He has a little chapter in there on the church, and he was the first one to expose me to what he calls the ecclesiastical hitchhiker. Listen to his description. He says, Church attendance is infected with a malaise of conditional loyalty, which has produced an army of ecclesiastical hitchhikers. The hitchhiker's thumb says, you buy the car, pay for the repairs and upkeep and insurance, fill the car with gas, and I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own, and I'll probably sue. So it is with the credo of many today's church attenders. You go to the meetings and serve on the boards and committees, and you grapple with the issues and do the work of the church and pay the bills, and I'll come along for the ride. But if things do not suit me, I'll criticize and complain and probably bail out. My thumb is always out for a better ride. Sound familiar? He goes on. He says, this debatable loyalty is fueled by a consumer ethos, what he calls a Christian mentality, which picks and chooses here and there to fill one's ecclesiastical or church shopping list. There are hitchhikers who attend one church for the preaching, send their children to a second church for its dynamic youth program, and go to a third church, a small group. Church hitchhikers have a telling vocabulary. I go to or I attend, but I never belong to or am a member. Big difference between the two, is there not? What about you? What about the Christians that you know? Church, the local church for you, is it a home or more like a hotel? Hotel. Is it a place where you belong or is it something that you borrow from? And what would Christ actually want? It's a tough question, but there's a clear answer from scripture. And in this final series sermon of the series, I just want to simply leave you with two reasons why every Christian should be clearly committed to a local church. Is that okay? Two reasons, very simply from scripture. Why every one of us should be clearly committed to a local church if we're in Christ. The first reason is this. We should honor the existence of church government. Committing to a church honors the existence of church government. It honors the existence of church government. Now, this is kind of a strange thing because most people don't actually recognize that Jesus actually intended for the church to be governed in a particular way. I mean, most people think that we're just kind of making it up. Maybe we, we do what we had seen in times past or we do what other churches do and whatever happens to work. But did you know that Jesus actually intended for like, the church to be like a source of authority and accountability? Like He intended for it to run a certain way? Two simple And really, non debatable expressions of this through the New Testament are that of elders leading and people following. Like Jesus actually intended for a group of men to to lead a particular church, he actually intended for other people to follow him in that leadership. And and for you to see just a very clear example of this, and I, I won't overuse this passage, but maybe you could turn over to Hebrews 13. And look at verse seventeen, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It's on page one thousand ten if you're using the pew Bible. The passage doesn't get much airtime. Don't talk about it very much, but it really does a good job showing why one should be committed to a church. One of the first reasons is we want to honor the existence of church government. Like Jesus actually intended for the church to be governed or run in a certain way. And one of the facets of that is elders or leading. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And notice this. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So there's this group of guys somewhere that are actually accountable for a particular group of people somewhere. Elders lead in Christ's church. This is a mind-blowing thing to think of. He actually intended for people to lead and be accountable for others. Listen to this passage. Just listen. Acts 20, 28. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, to the Ephesian pastors. Same word. Pay careful attention to yourselves, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers means like managers. To care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. He's saying, guys, you better be on the lookout. You have an accountability for the church that Jesus Christ actually died for. Listen to this one. It comes from 1 Peter 5, 2. Uh, This is, again, to pastors. Pastors have an accountability for a particular group of people. Peter says to the other pastors, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. The point is, friends, that elders are accountable for a particular group of people. That's the way that Christ has set it up. First Thessalonians 5.12 speaks to this. First Timothy 5.17 speaks to this. We won't go to those passages. But what I want you to understand is that if we're going to operate the way that Christ intended for His church to operate, whoever the pastors are need to know who they're pastoring. There needs to be like a clear commitment to a particular group of pastors. Let me just ask it this way. Have any of you ever been responsible for something that you didn't know you were responsible for? My kids play football over at, um, at Beacons at First Baptist, and it's flagged this year, so I've got three kids literally playing on three different fields. I have five children. It's a madhouse. And uh, I've just given up on trying to actually watch all five of my kids at the same time. Uh, I let the other two just kind of roam. Uh, you can chastise me for that later if you want. I, just, I really would rather watch my kids' football game. But one of the things that's actually that developed has been kind of funny because my youngest, she's four, and she will go and play at the end of the field. If you've ever been there, they have all the, like, football training equipment on one side. And this includes, like, big heavy tires for people to flip, you know, like for a workout. It also includes the little sleds, you know, that you would use to, like, push and, like, you know, build up your, your legs and exercise. So the kids love playing with these little sleds. And what kind of happens is a, a bunch of kids, I mean, parents must have the same philosophy I do because all their four- and five-year-olds go roam down to the end of the field. And whatever parent gets stuck there is kind of like in charge. So you don't really want to walk by there because you might end up like responsible. And so I was cutting through, trying not to cut through the field, and I got stuck. I just saw a bunch of kids. Nobody was there. I was like, okay, I'll watch. Because one of mine was there. And the the kids were doing this, what I thought was an extremely dangerous thing. They were taking the football sleds, and they were stacking them up against one another and, like, making a pyramid. But these things are heavy, and they could fall and, like, crush someone's, like, hands or feet or anything. So they're they're building pyramids out of these little sleds, and I'm not, like, hyper-cautious, but I did actually say to one of the, the little girls hey, this probably isn't a good idea. Let's go ahead and put these sleds down. Well, unbeknownst to me, there was another mom hawking around somewhere and she swoops over and says, what are you doing? I'm of the persuasion that my kids should learn from their own mistakes. You don't have any right correcting my children. And I was like, well, I was just trying to like keep them from smashing their fingers. She was like, well, it sounds like you're a little too protective to me. Needless to say, since that time, I have avoided that end of the football field. Somebody else can watch the kids. <laughs> the story's funny because we've all been in situations like that where you're like, am I responsible here or not? Like, am I supposed to be watching these kids? Or like, is there a mom around here somewhere who's actually going to own some responsibility for this? Like, it's a horrible spot to be in. And that's just kids in a football field. Can you sympathize with just the pastors for a moment? Can you imagine what it's like to be a pastor of a church? And you have people that are coming in and out. Some people stay for long periods of time. Some are self-professed snowbirds. Some are college students. Some are in the army. I mean, like, and you're like, am I supposed to be caring for you? Like, do do you need anything? Are we good? Are you? And yet the text says of the pastors, you're accountable. You're accountable for a particular group. You will give an account to God for who you care for. Friends, there needs to be some type of clear commitment so that pastors can know who they're supposed to be caring for. But it's not just about pastors leading. It's also about people following. Look back at your text to Hebrews thirteen seventeen. The, f- the first part says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's the question that I would ask any uh, ecclesiastical hitchhiker. To what elders do you submit? What leaders do you follow? Uh, Look just up at verse 7 of Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. The the, the idea was like they, they knew who their leaders were. What do you lead yourself? Or is there somebody in place? To whom do you, dare I even say it, submit? Now, this topic makes people feel uncomfortable. I hope you can tell I'm not uncomfortable with it. I think that authority is a good gift from God. And there, I think we often get confused, authority and authoritarianism. Every one of us love good authority. Actually, even the word authority, I mean, think about it, Root Author. Authority authors life. I'm glad that there are rules to board games and traffic laws. I'm grateful for policemen and teachers and referees and coaches. That's authority. God has set it up. In fact, This is a fantastic passage. King David, someone who is very familiar with authority, uh, sings just a few lines of praise of it in 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. He says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Don't, don't you like shafts of sunlight coming down on a field and stuff growing? I mean, like that's how he pictures it. He says authority is something that is good. And, and Jesus has even set up his church in a way that, that the church has authority. Pastors within the church have authority. And individual members have authority. It's almost like a triangle. And there's always two points of accountability on either end. So if you think about it from, let's pretend, just, I'm just a church member right now. I am accountable as a church member to my pastors, and I am accountable to the rest of the congregation. You think about the congregation as a whole. They're accountable to the other individual members. They're accountable to the pastors. Or who are the pastors accountable to? They're accountable to the congregation, and they're also accountable to individual members. This this beautiful balance of power that's in the church, and yet somebody is providing primary leadership according to the Lord. He said you need to submit to these particular leaders if you so have them. Now, where things get kind of scary for us is the fact that we of all, every one of us, have read in the paper or experienced firsthand an abuse of pastoral authority. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it's not even needed. You all know that it takes place. But what I want you to recognize is that despite its abuses, God still has it in place. I think we all know people who have abused police authority, but nobody's like, let's get rid of the police. Listen, friends, the reality is that God has chosen that certain men will lead the church. But guess what? I can't just stand up in here and say, Oh, guess what? I'm God's leader, therefore you should do it, I tell you. There's a reality, but there's also some restrictions. You want to know what the restrictions are on a pastor? It's the qualifications of the word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, give qualifications to a church, and guess what? The church has to actually affirm whether or not an individual meets those qualifications. I don't get to say, yep, follow me. I get to say, I desire to lead in this way. Do you see these qualifications in me? And that's why our church votes on pastors, by the way. But guess what? Once you're in, you're not in forever. Did you know I can be removed? A pastor can be removed. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 give a process for removing an elder if he's been unfaithful says, so like, in the, in the presence of two or three witnesses, a charge could be established if he's not living up to doctrine, if he's not living out the life that he needs to. For instance, this isn't just some, like, dog and pony show where, you know, this one guy gets to, like, run everything the way that he wants to. There's an accountability that's in place, for sure. But here's the deal. Let's get back to the main point. Elders, the way God set it up is elders, pastors, teachers, they're supposed to be responsible for a particular group of people and those people are supposed to be responsible to a particular group of leaders. So I don't know how you do that without a clear commitment to a particular church. I want to commend you as a church family because we don't have any issues with this wholesale. This is a very committed church. I've been in places that actively resist pastoral leadership. In fact, uh, our former pastor, Ken Davies, did a wonderful job at teaching you guys what pastors are and do and what you should be looking out for, and I love that about this church. I think there's a healthy understanding of how pastors work, what their limits are, but how they do exercise authority. This is this is wonderful. I commend this. But I would encourage us to help others who may struggle with this topic i'll say this now what is it october so we're about to have a lot of people visiting in this area for the next four months many of whom will say uh, i'm a snowbird i think we should help them understand that they need to clarify why they're here if they want to be cared for by the pastors of this church But we do have some members, for example, that travel. I see the Hans over here, and we had a great talk about this because they're up in Michigan some, and then they come down. You know what I've told them? What we've agreed as elders to do, when they're down here, we're primarily responsible for them. When they go up to Michigan, guess what? Since they're going to be there for several months, we commend them to the care of the pastors in that church. And when they come back, guess what? We own responsibility for them again. That's the way that it works. You say, well, what do you do with the college student?" Well, it depends on if the college student has a good church. If they don't have a good church, we still try to shepherd them from afar. If they do, as we had to do a few months ago, we commend them to the care of another church. You say, what do you do with the guy in the army? Well, if he can't in good conscience like, join the, the, the base church, which in many cases he can't, guess what? We're going to still shepherd him from afar. But the point is, all of us should be practicing or living out the existence of church government that Jesus himself had set up somewhere. And I would say one more thing on this. I want to encourage you in your own obedience. Thank you. I also want to encourage you to help others who may struggle with this. But the last thing I'll mention here is, look, we are accountable. And I'm telling you, friends, if you have a need, you have to communicate with us. We try to be among the flock. We try to figure things out. But really, just communicate with us if you do have something that's going on. Because this church has tripled in membership in the last three years. And it's kind of hard for pastors to always have the finger on the pulse of everybody and know where they're at. If you do have a need, just let the pastors know, and we'll do our best to try to see that need met. So why do we commit to a church? Why should we belong somewhere? Why should church be more of a home, less like a hotel? Well, it honors the existence of church government. It's the way Jesus set it up. Here's the second reason. Committing to a particular church enables the exercise of church discipline. Committing to a particular church enables the exercise of church discipline. Now, I know what you're thinking here because you're like, I don't know that I want to be a part of that. (laughs) Who actually wants to be a part of church discipline? Well, hear this out for a moment. When you were baptized, you were identified by a particular group of people as a believer, as, as someone who is in Christ. You were making a public commitment that I'm with Jesus, you were doing something, but guess what? You didn't baptize yourself, it says be baptized. Someone else baptized you, recognizing that you were a believer, that you were immersed into Christ. We just saw that happen last week in a beautiful way. The ongoing sign of your being in Christ is going to happen in a few minutes, right here. And that's communion. So the initiating sign is baptism. The ongoing sign of our fellowship is communion. As someone is partaking of communion, you know what they're saying? They're saying, I am good with Jesus and His people. And his people, by implication, are good with me. It is about your personal relationship with Jesus and you're uniting, you're being united with Him. But it's also a communal meal. It's something you do with other believers. You'll do it together, and so you're saying, "I'm one with his people." And we'll talk about that more later. But there is this process that's clear in Scripture. We've already talked about it, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But the truth is that. God actually intends that we're not only careful about who we baptize and who we allow to partake of communion, but guess what? Sometimes the Bible says that we have a responsibility as a church, not just the pastors, but as a church, to tell certain people, I don't think you should partake of communion or I don't think you should be baptized. It's a scary term because Roman Catholicism in particular has hijacked it and, and, and like put it on steroids. Have you ever heard the word excommunication? It kind of sends shivers down your spine. You think, oh my goodness, who in the world has the authority to excommunion someone? Like to separate them from the faith. When we excommunicate, we're not saying that we've kicked someone out of Jesus. <laughs> but we're saying that it seems like they are out of communion with the Lord. It seems like they are out of communion with the Lord. And we have a responsibility for that. Several passages point to this, and maybe it's the first time you've ever heard it. But I would encourage you to write down Matthew 18, 15 through 17. In that particular passage, it talks about dealing with inter-church conflict, and it says that if somebody sins against another, that they need to go to that individual and, and fix it. And guess what? If it doesn't work, they need to take two or three people with them so that they can mediate. And if that doesn't work, it says, tell it to the church. And guess what? If you tell it to the church, and the whole church is calling this person who has supposedly sinned to repent, and it doesn't happen. Jesus said... I want you to take that person and treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I'm a Gentile. I'm not a tax collector. But let me translate that into modern parlance. Treat him as a non-Christian. A Gentile was somebody who was outside the covenant community of God. A tax collector at that particular time was a Jewish person who went to go work for Rome. I mean, this is a foreign occupying nation and you went to go work for them. You were someone who betrayed them. It's to, to say, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector is treat them as one who is not part of the church. Treat them as someone who is a non-Christian. But friends, you can't be excluded from something you never belonged to. <laughs> I mean, this becomes even more clear in other passages you can just jot down is Acts chapter 5, verses 11-14. through 14. And this one's interesting because here... God himself exercises church discipline. He doesn't even wait for the church to do it. In this odd case of Ananias and Sapphira, if you grew up in church, you may remember this story. You had this couple who said that they were giving a certain amount of money to God. They were giving them all that they had, but they would actually lied about it. Anyway, Peter gives them a chance to tell the truth. Long story short, they don't tell the truth, and God kills them on the spot. Now, that's bad church discipline. (laughs) But listen to what happens after this. Listen to the response of the people in Acts 5, verses 11 through 14. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Yeah, that scared me too. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people and at hands of the apostles. And they were together in Solomon's portico. And listen to this. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried the sick into the streets and healed them. Notice this. People were scared. Listen to this. People were scared to associate themselves with them. Like, this whole like discipline thing, like it scared certain people from joining that group. Have you ever had the privilege of actually like driving around town and seeing a group of CrossFitters? A bunch of people radically committed to exercise, who are doing all kinds of crazy hard exercises together outside. Like sometimes they sprint, sometimes they squat, sometimes they're flipping tires. Like if you've ever seen one of these groups, it's enough to think, I do not want to be a part of that. I may be committed to my physical health, but I do not want to be a part of that group. I know if a couple of you do that, good job. I'm not in that group. (laughs) I like my personal exercise plan. But the truth is, like, You you see something like that? Oh, I I don't want to be a part of that. That's exactly what was happening in Acts five. These people were so committed to purity, like they were like "Ah, I don't you know I I yeah they can do their thing. If they're going to be that serious about living like Jesus together, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. There was an inside, there was an outside, there was a belonging, and there was a rejecting. Maybe the clearest of these is First Corinthians chapter five, verses twelve through thirteen, where Paul gives a warning to the Corinthian church about someone who has been basically caught up in immorality, and he says to them, "Look, you need to kick this person out. You you need to like remove yourself from them. You need to remove them from the church." And then he explains why this should take place in verse twelve of chapter five of First Corinthians. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? There's outsiders, but he's I'm talking about the inside. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There's supposed to be a particular group of people that we're looking out for. Listen to this church. There's supposed to be a particular group of people that we're supposed to know about. And if they do commit some type of open immorality, like we're actually supposed to call them out on that to the degree... That we have to remove them. Look at verse 13, or listen to it. God judges those outside, but now notice the contrast. Purge the evil persons from among you. Goodness sake. We ever responsible for purging a group of people? Man, that means we got to know who they are. Who in the world am I responsible? Like if they go living off in adultery, like I'm supposed to say, I love you, I care for you, but you are sinning against the Lord and your spouse. Don't do this. If you do, our church is going to have to say that it doesn't seem like you're a Christian and we're going to ask you not to partake of communion. You, clear commitment enables the practice of discipline. And listen, I, I use the word discipline on purpose, but you need to understand something. Discipline is not a bad word, just like authority. Discipline's a good word. It, it's both formative and corrective. Most of the time when you and I hear the word discipline, we think like a slap on the hand. But discipline is just instruction. It's mostly formative. You discipline your children, not just when you ground them or not just when you spank them, but you discipline your children when you tell them, hey, good job on helping your brother and sister. Hey, I really like the fact that you were cleaning your room. That was awesome. What's that? That's formative. You're forming something in them. You're building something in them. And then you've got corrective. You want it to be more formative than corrective, but every once in a while, you've got to correct. There, there, you know, we all have different schooling options. One of the things that, just personally, it's personal opinion. So I know school can be a sensitive subject, but I'm going to make a school statement, so please don't write me any angry emails. I think that your kids can go public school, home school, private school, whatever you want to do. There's many options and I think different kids in different stages need different things. We cool? All right, now I'm going to make a statement. For my particular kids, we've had them in the public school system our entire lives. But one of the things that I noticed in recent years, uh, especially when we had made it here, was I remember one of the teachers in particular on the, like, the orientation saying, hey, parents, you, you just need to know something, and you'll be really excited about this. We do the PBS here. I said, PBS, public broadcasting system. I don't think that's what it means. And she said, it is the positive behavior system. And I'm thinking, Mom, oh, all right, what's that? So anyway, I'm just asking what the positive behavior system is. I said, you don't have to worry about us ever correcting your child. We're just going to reinforce the good and i'm thinking are they proud of this like my kids do wrong stuff you know like i need somebody to tell them if they've done something wrong does anybody would anybody want to go to school and and never be told if you got anything wrong like you'd have to be a total narcissist And yet, here, what is like, the the text is telling us, like, look, a church, oh, yeah, there's going to be positive, there's going to be encouragement, there's going to be affirmation, but every once in a while, like, we correct. We've got to, like, tell one another when we did something wrong or when we were off. A friend of mine explained it this way He said, I need the church because I can't see the back of my own head, and I win every argument that I have with myself. Anybody else have that experience? There's certain parts of us we just can't see. And there are certain arguments left to ourselves. We're going to find the right internet research to validate anything that we want to do. And Jesus says, Set up my church in a way that there's going to be discipline. And a clear commitment to the church makes that possible. We want to know who we're accountable for. We want to know who we should be correcting. And I say this, friends, this is common sense. Correction best takes place in the context of a personal relationship. Correction best takes place in the context of a personal relationship. If I just came up to you after the service and said, Man, I saw you during the service today. It didn't look like you were paying very much attention. Like if there was a visitor. Could you ima- I can't imagine that any of you, I see many of you visiting today. Thank you for being here. I'm not going to do that. And you all are paying very good attention. But could you imagine that? You think, who are you? But when you belong in a church and somebody comes to you lovingly and says, hey man, I've noticed this about you. Um, I, I've, I've fallen prayed the same thing. I, I think you need to, you need to consider this. Like, that's church. That's the way Jesus intended for it to work in a committed relationship. That's why we talked about last week, truth in love, speaking the truth in love. What do we do with this, friends? Well, we commit to this kind of care. Do you want this kind of care? And I affirm it. You know, friends, let's just make this really clear. Before you see this as a license to go sniping off people and all the things you don't like about them, I'll just give you a general principle here. I think that uh, older, older, wiser pastors say this. 80% of what needs to be done in a church can be done through affirmation. 80% of what needs to be done in a church can be done through affirmation. I know some of you think you should just kind of keep it even. You're like, man, I don't want him to get too encouraged, so let me tell him something bad. No, just go ahead and affirm, encourage, build up and only after you've established like some trust and some credibility then you could start throwing out some concern 80%. I even heard one other pastor say that his affirmation to critique ratio is 10 to 1 for his church members. It's 3 to 1 for pastors it's 10 to 1 for church members. Listen, I don't have, there's no standard of like what the ratio should be. I don't have any divine percentages somewhere. All I'm saying is, is that we should establish love. It's a lot easier for us to go confront somebody because we're ticked off and therefore doing it for ourselves than it is to actually go to somebody and to correct them out of love and concern for them. So I would encourage you, friends, if you're a part of this church already, I want you to know what you've signed up for. You've signed up to encourage and affirm others, but you've also signed up to edify and to build up and to sometimes correct others. It is what we do here. We love each other in that way. So we need to affirm. We do need to affront sin when we see it. But can I encourage you to make it easy on one another? It's very practical. Here's the question. Write this down. Ask somebody this question this week within this church. Here it is. If you knew I wouldn't rise up to defend myself, what would you address in me? I dare you. Ask that question. If you knew I wouldn't rise up to defend myself, what would you address in me? I think sometimes, frankly, we've made it hard to do this with one another because we get so stinking defensive. Listen, if someone accuses me of something, I bet you I'm guilty of way more than they possibly know. Like, really, that's all you got? Because I got a whole list longer than that. Okay, thank you for that one. Since that one's coming a little more obvious, yes, I'll take that on. But the defensiveness, we've got to drop it. So make it easier on one another. Just ask somebody. I mean, like, this should be a monthly thing on your to-do list. Ask somebody I know. If I would not, If you knew I wouldn't rise up to defend myself, what would you address with me? And we can do that because we have all committed to the exercise of this church discipline together. So we commit. We commit to a church to get this kind of care. We, we commit because we want to honor the existence of church government. We commit because we want to enable the exercise of church discipline. This is a good thing. I, I want somebody to love me in that way. It's uh, almost Halloween, so I find it appropriate to use this type of illustration. One of my uh, favorite authors, despite serious theological concerns, but one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis because of the way that he can captivate my imagination. He'll take biblical abstract truth and present it in such a concrete way that I can't forget it. One of his most vivid is that of The screw tape letters, where you have this this senior demon, it's fiction, of course, telling his younger protege, like, how to tempt this guy. And you're, like, getting the inside scoop on how Satan works. And anyway, it's just an amazing exercise in reverse psychology because you're thinking, like, oh man, they want to accomplish this. And it makes you really careful. One of the things that screw tape will tell his younger protege, Wormwood, is to get his patient, what he calls the patient, the guy that he's trying to tempt. Uh, he, he gives us some tips on duping church-going Christians. And Screwtape says, if you can't get him to skip church altogether, because that would be the ideal, the next best thing is to get him to church shop or church hop in a cynical or critical way, never opening up to receiving nourishment from preaching and accountability for a particular group of people. And listen to these words. They're timeless. He says, My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church, and only one since he was converted, and that he's not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you were about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the local church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman in church is an attitude which may indeed be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise, does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in the uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is ongoing. This attitude, especially during sermons, creates the condition most hostile to our whole policy in which platitudes can become really audible to a human soul. There is hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. So pray, bestir yourself, and send this full round the neighborhood of churches as soon as possible. It's Satan's strategy. If somebody can constantly be the connoisseur, the critique of churches, now they're never under any authority. They never have to submit to a particular group of pastors. They're never accountable to a particular group of people. And Satan rejoices! They have escaped the means that Christ himself has set up from the very beginning. It's so funny. It's sad. So many, and I'm not going to quote all the statistics, have congratulated themselves. They're patting themselves on the back for figuring out some way to do Christianity without church. And Satan's rejoicing with them. Because to not belong to any particular church is to defy the existence of church government. And it is to deny the exercise of church discipline. Friends, I'm not arguing for a database, a membership ceremony, an application, a signature. The expression of membership or belonging or commitment looks different in different cultures. I assure you that the house church pastors that I met with this week in China aren't signing their name on a sheet of paper so that the government could get a hold of it. But guess what? I bet you the pastors of those churches know who their people are. I bet you the people of those churches know who their pastors are. I bet you the people know who they're accountable for. We may organize and structure things a little differently here in Naples, Florida in the 21st century because it's nice to be organized and write down stuff so that we can better care for you. But at the end of the day, what we really care about is are we exercising the church government that Jesus has set up, especially as elders, if we're accountable? And are we exercising our responsibility toward one another truly to care through church discipline? I leave you with these just just two words that you could meditate on by means of application. Uh, The first is that of commitment. We just leave on a note of commitment. And for most of you in here today, I'm not telling you to, to be more committed. You're committed, you're in. But what I want to encourage you with is to help others who may be struggling. You may remember that six weeks ago I did a survey with many of you just to ask about this particular series, what you needed to know, areas you thought you needed to grow. What I was so pleased with and encouraged by is that like 90% of our church understands the importance of belonging to a church. But it seemed that only maybe half of you really knew how to help others understand the importance of belonging to a church as well. Listen, you've got a good thing going, we've got a good thing going, and in, in, in being committed to one another under this body. It's it's good. But we need to help others in a similar way. So commitment. Commitment not only for us, but commitment for others who say that they're following Jesus. And then a second thing, and this is the most important. Don't ever lose sight of this. As big a deal as it is for us to be a part of a church, more important than commitment, more fundamental, more foundational, is that of conversion. May we never be more concerned about belonging to the visible church than we are the invisible. I say that because it's so easy to like, get concerned about someone and say, man, if we could just get them to church, if they would just start coming to church. You know the old saying? I grew up in churches where like, the, the southern pastors would preach this thing regularly. They would say, just because you're in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. <laughs> Just because you're in a church doesn't make you a Christian. I'm still more, concern, more concerned than I am about somebody coming to church. I'm concerned about them being in the church. I'm concerned about them being converted. And I pray that we would share that same concern. Listen, conversion happens as a matter of what Christ has done. You know what's beautiful? Is that Jesus has said that he died for his church. We just sang about it, but it comes straight from the Scriptures. He died for his church. He shed his blood for a church. He shed his blood for a group of people that would represent him. Friend, I say this to you if you're visiting here today, if you just happen to be in church but not a part of it, Jesus has come to satisfy all that God would ever require of you. He lived the righteous life that you couldn't live, and he died to pay the penalty for the ways that you've rebelled against him. And, and he's so satisfied that God rose him again from the grave like three days later to show that everything was paid and like he would exhibit like power over death itself. And anyone who trusts in him receives that forgiveness and that life and they're reconciled to him and they have a relationship with him. And then secondarily, they have a relationship to his people. More so than church attendance should you be concerned about being in Christ. So let's never get the cart before the horse. If you don't know what that means, you have questions about that, talk to one of the members around you today. Use the Connect card and put the UF questions. Come talk to one of the pastors afterward. But it is important that we are in Christ. And as we've reviewed what it means to be a part of His church, let us read one more time the final reminder of how this church should be our home. And I will end where we began. Acts chapter 2. God's plan for His church. And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes together, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May this be true of our church. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice to be a part of your church. Yeah, this this local representation of it is not perfect, but it will be one day. And as imperfect as it is, it is your plan. And you are perfecting it through the Word, through our, our ministry to one another, and I pray for continued success in the days ahead. As we represent you, and I pray that more would join and be added to it. Not just in transferring from one place to another, but being converted, being placed in Christ to keep us fruitful, faithful in our mission to advance the gospel around the world. We thank you for this privilege of representing you as your people. Encourage us with this, even this week. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.